Welcome to another episode of the Transcendence Podcast. I am your host, I guess, uh, Corey Bradford Watts, and my guest today is Dr. Rebecca Esserson. Uh, Rebecca, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? What's uh, what's your role in, in this world right uh, now? Um, well, my professional role is that I am the Assistant Professor of Sacred Texts and Traditions and the Dorothea Harvey Professor of Swedenborgian Studies here at the Center for Swedenborgian Studies. We're in my office here at the Center for Swedenborgian Studies, um, uh, which you have just graduated. You're one of our now former it. graduate students oh getting gosh. your MDiv here uh, so, um, you know, our situation, we're this very small center for Swedenborgian studies with a faculty of three uh, here, but we get to also be a part of this much, much bigger consortium of faculty uh, here at the Graduate Theological Union, which is a consortium of um, many different seminaries and centers for religious studies. There's a center for Jewish studies and a center for Islamic studies mm. and a center for Dharma studies. And here we have a center for Swedenborgian studies, which is just so amazing that we, as a, this teeny tiny religious tradition, um, can have such a presence on, um, on the world stage at a place where interfaith conversations are happening um, in very unique and exciting ways here at the Graduate Theological Union. So um, that's my work, is to be a professor here. Um, and I teach half my classes. It's kind of divided 50-50. Half my classes are in Swedenborgian studies, um, aimed primarily at our Swedenborgian students. And then the other half are in my um, field of training that my PhD was in, which is... Um, the history of the interpretation of the Bible, and the history of Jewish-Christian relations. Oh, wow. So that is what I teach. Pretty, pretty heavy topics. Those those last ones, right? Yeah, they're uh, massive. Obviously, massive. I had to narrow my focus somewhat in order to write a dissertation uh, <laughs> on this very vast history. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you said that's your professional role. What are your other roles in this in this world? Oh, well, I have three children. Mm -hmm. um, They're beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So that takes up all of my other time. <laughs> really, that's it. <laughs> no, I'm a member of the Swedenborgian Church in El Cerrito, Hillside Community Church um, there. So I am active in that community as well. That's a wonderful community. Yeah. And your your husband, he is... Well, tell us about him a little bit. Well, I met my husband in Israel. We were both studying abroad in Jerusalem. Um, he's from England, and he's a Jewish educator. He teaches in a, a Jewish day school. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for coming on the podcast. And, um, you know, in the Transcendence podcast, we we tend to, to keep it kind of informal but uh we try to get to the heart of of what you know um, people are about uh so what's on your mind lately what are you what are you captivated by and, and i, I want to ask you more about the classes you teach but I'm, I'm just curious so we just just finished our semester here so i'm in transition mode of, of having finished a very intense semester with two brand new courses um, and then now moving back into some long-term projects um, with the summertime season coming. Um, yeah. But I guess in terms of my own headspace, my own scholarship, where I'm hoping to go uh, forward in my thinking about these areas is this, uh, I'm very interested in this trope of the Old Testament angry God that we hear so often from pulpits and in classrooms and in conversation um, and online. It's a popular idea. I hear idea. this all the time, the Old Testament angry <laughs> God, and it makes me cringe and... Um, cringe because... Because it's, it's wrong, it's inaccurate, yeah. and it's, it's a trope that... It's a way we have... Uh, some, somehow we've divided the Bible into 
Old Testament, New Testament, mm-hmm. by way of talking about God is either angry or loving. So hey, they're both kind of old. <laughs> they're both kind of old. Right. No, it's <laughs> not it's not the Old Testament. Oh, and they're both kind of new, sorry. <laughs> it's not the old new designation that I'm no, no. taking issue with. Although I take a little issue with that. But yes. Well, there's a very interesting conversation happening around that um, oh, yeah. among those who study Jewish Christian relations and and, oh, yeah. and arguing a lot of a lot of scholars are arguing no Christians need to embrace these terms they have meaning in Christianity hmm. old doesn't necessarily need to be thought of as a as a, it doesn't negative. Have to be a negative thing right but my Sorry. interest is in um, this trope of the angry Old Testament God and the loving New Testament God which is first of all inaccurate there's an awful lot of loving God in uh, the loving God in the Old Testament, and there's an awful lot of angry God in the New Testament. Um, so, where does this division come from? When you have uh, when when you have tropes like this, these easy divisions that aren't accurate. There's not an accurate reflection of the text. So, what's going on? Where does this come from? Um, why? In which context is it useful today? And in which context has this been a useful designation in history? Hmm. So I will be hopefully embarking on some historical research on the development of this idea. Um, what are some of your early preliminary thoughts about, about the history of that? Christians were not always, um, you know, for a lot of the history of Christianity, the idea of an angry God was very natural and part of the uh, part of the theology in the hands of an angry god be angry yeah Yeah. uh, this was it is there are certainly images very angry wrathful images in the bible old and new testament um so for a lot of history of of christian thought this was uh, not a controversial idea so at what point in particularly in liberal protestantism did this become a foil uh, to talk about the wrong idea of God versus the right idea of God. Hmm. And I think that's it's something that comes about in the 19th century in particular. Um, what, what exactly comes about in the 19th century? The... Well, this shift to thinking about God, the true God is a loving God. Oh, yeah. And any image of God that is not loving uh, is a false image which is something that Swedenborg said. This was an idea that Swedenborg had in the 18th century mm-hmm. and that he was accused of heresy for. Uh, John Wesley in particular oh, wow. accused Swedenborg of being against the Bible um, for this particular, with this particular point in mind that uh, Swedenborg said God is loving God is only love. God is not capable of being angry. And any time in the Bible when God appears angry, it is an appearance only, that there is something else going on. That's now, amazing. Swedenborg gets this idea from Augustine. Hmm. He gets this idea from Augustine. Augustine writes that... Early theologian. Yeah, early Christian. Um, Christian theologian. Long before the split between Catholics and Protestants. Hmm. Um he was writing that some parts of the Bible are to be read as allegory and some parts are to be read literal. And one key for Augustine to knowing whether a particular part was to be read allegorically was whether or not God appears angry or unjust or um, punishing. And he said, this is a key to you to read allegorically because that's against God's nature. Swedenborg says the same thing, and he's reading Augustine. But this does not go over so well to the likes of John Wesley, who (laughs) is a a biblical literalist, very much uh, in vogue at the time, post-Reformation. Protestants tended to be biblical literalists. And for Wesley, this was evidence that Swedenborg was a heretic. He's reading the Bible non-literally. The Bible says black and white, Plain as day, God is angry. God is wrathful. And anything else is heresy. Huh. So um, I take all of Jesus' parables literally. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Especially in your gardening, right? <laughs> exactly. 
So, and, and Swedenborg would read all of scripture symbolically and, and even view kind of like yeah. nature as symbolic towards a deeper like message from God or... Yeah, Swedenborg would say there would be parts of scripture where the sun shines clearly and the parts where the cl- it's a bit I cloudier. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Augustine, he's interested in having some kind of a rubric whereby you um, can know when when it's when the literal sense um, is theologically uh, uh, sound. And, and I should mention that uh, we, we mentioned scripture, and, and Swedenborg was very heavily focused on biblical scripture, although he didn't believe every book of the Bible was necessarily um, scripture, like uh, in the way that he thought of this kind of uh, deep internal sense, uh, narrative-driven stories. For example, Paul's letters, he thought they were just, you know, Paul's letters, uh, not necessarily under the guise of of scripture per se. But he also kind of had a wider lens of scripture too, where he kind of defined scripture as anything that had this kind of divine deep message within it, um, whether it's in the Bible or not. And of course, he's very pluralistic in his view of what flies with God, you know, he didn't think you had to be Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's exciting, a new, new line of research. And... Yeah, I think it's uh, needed. For one thing, we as Swedenborgians have no business talking about the Old Testament angry God because we, it's, 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 it's key to our theology that God's not angry and that um, we are reading these passages in ways that... Um, the perception of God as angry is more about um, our our relationship to God, not God's uh, uh, relating to us. Um, and yet, I hear it everywhere in Swedenborgian contexts. Okay. And if there's one thing you know that I want my students who come out of this seminary to have, and I don't want any of my students to go into a pulpit <laughs> and talk about the Old Testament angry God, it's very problematic. Not only because it's inaccurate, but it uh, it reinforces a stereotype about Judaism, about Jewish religion, that it's legalistic. Oh, yeah. um, uh, that's just not. It's 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 very problematic, and I don't think people who use this trope are doing that consciously, but it has an effect of, of reinforcing something of some kind of dichotomy, either a Protestant, Catholic dichotomy or a Jewish Christian one that is, is really problematic for lots of reasons. So uh, yeah. So that's yeah. So it's interesting it's historically, important. but it's also very relevant today. Yeah. Um, I hear this not just in Swedenborgian contexts, but in, mm-hmm. in other contexts too. Um, well I heard that a lot growing up in Protestant churches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's it's an easy one because I think those stories where God does get angry stick with you. And then there is also this trope of like, we have the new message, right, in the New Testament, like the the the, the preemptive message, and and that's very problematic in a lot of ways. Where, where when we're trying to, kind of, establish ourselves as above everyone else, uh, but then again, I mean, a lot of religions do that, right? Or at least sects of religions tend to say, you know, we have it right, and everyone else is kind of fallen on the wayside. Yeah, and it's a way of turning a blind eye to the aspects of your own texts and traditions that are problematic, and but pointing to them in other people's <laughs> texts and traditions, That's right? Point. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's an, it's a, we all fall into it. Um, well, it's like choosing to be moralistic from the Bible in certain ways and condemn, let's say, uh, gay people, and yet not really live live what it says either you know and and in fact maybe even be kind of more set against the text if you really look at um you know all the all the law and and ideas presented throughout biblical scripture i mean uh, you know as jesus said uh, the person without uh, sin throw the first stone right and it's very hard to be a biblical literalist. Even those people who claim to be biblical literalists are going to be picking and choosing um, which aspects uh, 
they want to focus on. And it's, it's the rare person who's going to be literalist about every line in the Bible. And it's not necessarily a lifestyle you want to advocate for. <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing two types of cloth, I guess. I'm, I'm in trouble. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, good luck in that endeavor. I'm excited to see where that goes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you said you were teaching two new classes this last semester. What were what were those? So, like I said, I my my teaching load is divided between um, Swedenborgian studies and uh, a history of biblical interpretation uh, for a broader student body. So, I taught a class this semester called Death and Immortality for Swedenborgian students, for Swedenborgian seminarians, um, hmm. wrestling with many aspects of the dying process. We began with the medical, uh, the conversation in the medical community about dying and how it's just changed so rapidly and so dramatically, the process of dying with all of our medical advancements and not necessarily to our benefit. So we began oh. there, um, and we uh, then went through um, talking about hospice chaplaincy, which is a, a, a popular profession among our graduates. Actually, we have a lot of alumni who are hospice chaplains, so we really? were able to bring one of them in to, to speak with us. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and ritual aspects around death. Um, in the Swedenborgian tradition, but also more broadly. And then we read Swedenborg's Heaven and Hell, which I happen to have next to me. Oh, nice. Um, <laughs> this book, which was a bestseller in America in the 19th century. Uh, really? A bestseller? Yeah, a bestseller. It was. <laughs> wow. It was on the list. Uh, People used to know who Sweden, Emanuel Swedenborg 19th was. 19th century. Swedenborg was very, in particular, this book was very popular. Um, so we, we read it, and then we, dis we considered how it influenced uh, European and American ideas about the afterlife, and its influence was quite significant, oh, really? far beyond the very, very small confessional Swedenborgian community. Swedenborg's ideas about heaven and hell were incredibly influential. Um, is that why I see so many similarities in, in yes. the TV shows and things? Uh, yes, the, the people who make this argument are uh, McDaniel and Lang, this book, Heaven a History. And they, they oh. make the argument that um, our modern, or not our, the modern idea of heaven comes in large part from, from Swedenborg's uh, Heaven and Hell. Well, it doesn't hurt that a lot of like near-death experiences that I read about um, and people share like seem to fall well in line with the Swedenborg's conception. Right, so that's 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 a much more recent um, phenomenon. So back to my course. Sorry, yeah. we could go. We could go in all these tangents. Wait, this is kind of so we did a couple course, weeks right? on near death experiences. Oh, really? Um, and then we we talked about um, Swedenborg's reception in German philosophy, Immanuel mm -hmm. Kant, and Friedrich Schelling, and uh, and we ended on oh. with a section on grief. We ended with grief. Stuff. We ended with a couple weeks on grief. Uh, it was a really interesting arc for the class to kind of start with the dying process and then ideas of immortality and then end on this topic of grief and grieving uh, cross-culturally. We did some comparative studies then. Hmm. So it was a very, it was a powerful class. I enjoyed yeah. putting that together and the students were wonderful. Sounds like it would be to the conversation. Powerful. Yeah. So and then the other class I taught was um, called Jews, Christians, and the Bible, hmm. and this was a doctoral level course that was a survey of recent scholarship on Jewish Christian relations and the Bible, the uh, canonization of and interpretation of the Bible, hmm. um, and. This class started, the syllabus for this came about when I was sitting uh, one day working on something entirely different, and I, I just started pulling books off my shelf, and I was saying to myself, if I were to just design my dream syllabus <laughs> of all the books I would want to um, read deeply and carefully and consider with students, with do doctoral students here at the GTU, 
what would those books be? And this yeah, is the cool. course that came out of that. Oh, wow. Um, and it worked. Uh, it was a good, a good class, and I hope to develop it further um, for future, future iterations of it here at the Graduate Theological That's Union. Awesome. So. That's great that you could do that, you know, just craft the, the class of your dreams. Yeah, <laughs> That's awesome. it really is amazing. Uh, it was, yeah, it's, it was an amazing privilege to be able to do something like that. Was it a pretty good semester then? It was a good semester, <laughs> yeah. Both classes, as you can imagine, were pretty heavy topics. Yeah. A lot of darkness oh, in both of them, yeah. um, a lot of sadness in both classes, mm. a lot of heavy heaviness in different ways. Well, you um, mentioned grief, and you know, a lot of people struggle with grief and around dying, and I mean trauma, of course, mm. and all those things. And I'm curious, what, what was kind of the arc of the conversation in the class? With around grieving? The, yeah, with grieving. Um, well, I'd say the idea that kept coming to the surface around grieving was um, the importance of letting people grieve fully or encouraging yourself or others to grieve fully uh, in the wake of a loved one's death, that to, to rush yourself or to rush anyone along to life back to normal can have dire consequences down the road. And, um, we were very fortunate to have John Titus visit us, um, who is on our board, but he is also the author of a book um, called Losing Alicia. And his daughter, Alicia Titus, was a flight attendant on 9-11 on the second plane um, that hit the, the World Trade Center. And um, his grieving process was complicated by the fact that it was um, this international event, right? That this was on the news every day. He had to watch this airplane crash over and over and over again. And he had reporters calling his house. And um, so his book on this topic is, is uh, wonderful. I highly recommend it. But he has a lot to say about the grieving process and um, having um, done it in a very complicated circumstances for him. It was important to go through it and enter it deeply, not to try to push aside his grief or move past it before he was ready, but to just go, I mean, he uses the language of go, the only way to the other side is through it. Um, so, um, so he was a great conversation partner about this well, yeah. yeah I can only imagine I mean he's done a well he's worked um, or he started a like a foundation um, remembering her and, and doing work yeah. in the world him him and his wife right yeah they they do a lot of peace work peace advocating work. for for peace and understanding and hmm. um, he was very much against the military activities that followed American military activities that followed 9-11 and he and some of the other uh, families, 9-11 families, were involved in advocating against military activity. So he's very active on the scene and um, peace. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I, I can't imagine that's... Uh, well, well, yeah, it sounds like he would be a pretty um, impactful speaker to have he in the really class. He really is, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah he's, He's read a lot about grief and studied it uh, from personal experience, but also from other people's experiences, and he, he speaks about it to other groups as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. and uh, any, any strong takeaways from the, from the students um, in your, your Christian, uh, Jew, uh, Jews, biblical... Christians in the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. Class. Um, were they, it seems like, you know, they, you'd have to have like very specific interest to, to want to take that kind of class, but it, it sounds very like interesting and important. Well, I think we all came away feeling that it's important for any seminarian or any student of the New Testament in particular to have a strong grounding in uh, early Jewish Christian 
relations, to have a strong grounding in first, second, third century uh, history of the, how these traditions that we now call Christianity and we now call Judaism came to be. Um, that there was no such thing as Christianity or Judaism at the time of uh, Jesus' life or even the generations following Jesus's life. These are concepts and constructs that came much later, and we tend to read them back onto ancient history. Uh, and uh, you can come away with this uh, a more accurate and more productive understanding of Judaism and Christianity if you could kind of go back to the, uh, before they, before we had these these constructs and these categories, and study the New Testament, study early rabbinic documents, study mm -hmm. some of these early texts, uh, as though these categories didn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, I took a John Shelby Spong class, the author and um, priest, and he. The class I took was around like the structure of the Gospels. Um, I think it was specifically Luke and or a couple couple of the Gospels, and um, maybe not Luke. And uh, but he was convinced that the structure of those uh, books are laid out like uh, very specifically to be in line with the Jewish liturgical year, uh -huh. um, and that of course like the early Christians were. Um, most of them, many of them were very much Jewish or steeped in Judaism. For sure. Um, yeah, and I, I actually found it really amazing how beautiful um, his ideas, actually I think he might have been inspired by someone else, but how how beautifully it fit and a lot of like the details of the stories um, that I wouldn't know had a deeper connection actually echo these stories mm -hmm. from the, the Hebrew scriptures. Mm. Yeah, and um, there are a lot of scholars who, in Jewish studies, who write on this. And, uh, John uh, Shelby Spong was a Christian uh, yes. clergyman, um, but if you want to read kind of a, a, a perspective from um, Jewish studies, Daniel Boyarin is a very great place to start. Uh, he contextualizes a lot of the gospel narratives against um, intra-Jewish is a, maybe not the right term, but in, intra-religious terms that this Jesus was a Jew among Jews debating their own traditions and their own uh, rituals, ritual requirements, the way that you and I as two Swedenborgians might pick apart one particular doctrine and take there are two different sides on it. That's what's going on there in the Gospels, and it's a really interesting way to mm -hmm. read or reread the Gospels. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there are many others who are doing this work. But the book that I would want um, yes. people to read, Christians in particular, who are interested in this history to read, would be Amy Jill Levine's Misunderstood Jew. Um, have you read this? or heard I've read her? another, yeah, of her books, um, yeah. Misunderstood Jew. The Misunderstood Jew. I'm sure I have it. Oh, I might have lent it out. Um, that's that's a good one to start with. It's written for a broader audience, not just for uh, students in, in theological schools or seminaries or doctoral programs. She's writing for a broader audience, and she, she just brings it home. Yeah. So. It really hits the spot. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and the way it's very similar to this Old Testament, New Testament, angry versus loving God, that we tend to use Judaism and Christianity. We tend to use it as a foil for that thing that we're not supposed to be, right? And so in doing uh, yeah. so, in doing so, we create this picture of who Jews were in the first century that's just not accurate and it's really ugly. And hmm. that Jesus was a feminist because women were really oppressed by Judaism. Um, she, that's a particular one of hers that she just debunks completely that, that Jews were, Jewish women were so badly mistreated in the first century and Jesus came along and saved them. Uh, it's not, that's just not reflected in the Gospels. It's not reflected in other um, 
texts and other evidence we have from the time period that, well, that Jewish women or that women is Israelite women or women from the time period were so so badly treated. That's one of the that's the stereotypes one. of yeah women. right 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 huh. yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's funny how we do that, and of course, we as Swedenborgians do that too, right? Like yes, the point. <laughs> and I hear it in um, feminist. Christian feminist circles, this idea that comparing the patriarchy to the Pharisees. I hear this all the time huh. in Swedenborgian circles, but in outside of Swedenborgian circles too, this comparison to the legalism of the Pharisees and um, the oppression of women to, our, to, to situations in our current day. And there's a long history uh, in the feminist movement of employing anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic tropes to their ends. Uh, Amy Gillivine is wonderful on this, um, but uh, it's a history to be, just to be aware of. Yeah. People don't always know that they're doing it. Um, well, I feel like American culture has been doing that, spe specifically using kind of tropes from the Bible that they see, like the Pharisees being labeled as like the, a villain, yes. and then just applying that, you know, as if that's historical fact, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a certain amount of sensitivity um, to this that can just go a long way. Just a touch of sensitivity can go a long way hmm. in how you're preparing your sermons, how you're preparing your services, how you're preparing to use texts that might talk about the Jews or the Pharisees. Just a little, just a touch of, of awareness hmm. of this history go a long, long way. Yeah. Well, and it's easy to, to problematize even Swedenborg's kind of generalizations of peoples, and we don't need to go into that uh, hairy subject necessarily, but I've been reading a spiritual diary, and, you know, he, he loves to generalize peoples. I mean, in a way, he's saying, um, I'm generalizing him too, but in a way, he's, he's saying, I've ran into this group, in the spiritual world, you know, in his mis mystical visions of spiritual reality, and they tend to act this way. But then, of course, they'll say, well, people in this religion are also on all these other planes in the spiritual world acting totally different, uh -huh. you know, but he doesn't take the time to say that when he's giving an example. You know, it's just, you almost have to read a lot of Swedenborg to get, oh, it's just how he, he writes, how he speaks, and... Um, but that's a problem today, or at least we recognize it as a problem today where we need to be more careful around how we, we take tropes or, or use someone's identity and, and this oversimplify things, right? Yeah, so all of our texts, and you know, Christians are not unique uh, in this regard. Our sacred texts have elements in them that when taken literally can encourage a kind of uh, stereotyping or worse racism anti-semitism um, that we have to account for if we're going to align ourselves with these texts right so i'm very interested in examples of communities movements feminist movements whatnot who grapple with their texts. They don't necessarily leave them behind. If they do, fine. You know, but I'm interested in those moments when communities can read these texts and find ways through them um, that are, again, sensitive. That sensitive and maybe account for incredibly violent, problematic histories, but find a way forward that with that that carries a kind of sensitivity. Yeah. So I'm on a committee right now that is working to draft a statement um, for our denomination, for the Swedenborgian Church of North America, on this topic of text interpretation, of interpretation of our scriptures and discrimination. Mm. Um, trying to account for um, racist, anti-Semitic, sexist, histories that may have come at, uh, with the aid of some of what we call sacred scripture. So accounting for this history, but also trying to move forward um, with an awareness and um, 
a determination to do better. Yeah. It's not easy, it turns out, to draft such a statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's been a process. So I'm not sure if we'll be able to vote on it this year at convention or if it will need to be a longer process. Um, I think it'll need to be at least another year of opening up this conversation and studying this history and thinking about um, how we want to, um, what statement we want to put out to the world about about this. But um, hmm. to stand strong together against discrimination and against the use of sacred scripture uh, for discriminatory purposes. That's wonderful. That's so, good work. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense that it would take a little while to yeah. get right. But other churches have been doing this work. Uh, yes. And we've yeah. been doing this work, but I think it will be helpful to take an, a kind of official stance. Um, mm-hmm. The Evangelical Lutheran Church has put together a wonderful statement about grappling with the history of anti-Semitism, uh, with Luther as a figure, historical figure, but also in, in Lutheranism, and it's just such a beautiful model, I think, for, not that they've solved the problem, but uh, the, the yeah. particular statement they've drafted is a, is a beautiful model for other churches who want to make a statement um, officially. That's great. So I'm hoping we can do that. Well, yeah. Hmm. That's excellent. Yeah. And so what are, what are your other plans for the summer here? Well, I will be attending a workshop for... Um, uh, early career faculty at theological schools and seminaries at the Wabash Center. Uh, a workshop? Yep, it's a week-long workshop, three times over the next year that I'll be oh. attending. Um, really looking forward to that. What is that? What kind of workshop? Is that? Um, it, my understanding is that it will be um, teacher, teacher training, or you know, oh, nice. it'll be talking about methodologies and teaching pedagogy uh, with a particular focus on theological studies and graduate hmm. graduate schools, centers of theological learning. So. It's good to always learn. And yeah, and it'll <laughs> be nice to be in a cohort with other early career faculty yeah. in theological studies. And it's nice having like a group where you can connect on you know something important in your life. And yeah. In fact, uh, you know, a lot of I I did a, a unit of chaplaincy at a hospital mm-hmm. um, of. Uh, clinical pastoral education, and one of the things that, um, you know, we'd recommend around those who are grieving is to find a cohort, you know, to mm. find other people to connect with. Mm. It's community in all these different shapes and sizes can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's exciting. Yeah. So good, and I'll be attending our annual convention of the Swedenborgian Church in yes. North America, so that'll be in July, where... You will be ordained. <laughs> yes, if Looking I uh, forward to hopefully, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all goes so. well. That's yeah. great. Thank you. Um, yeah. It'll be great to see you there and, and everyone. Yeah. Really looking forward to that. <laughs> lovely. Well, yeah. wonderful. And your your kids? How old are they? Three, nine, and ten. Three, nine, and ten. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot on your plate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got good support, so. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll be all traveling to visit family this summer, so. Oh, good. Lots of cousin time for them. Well, that is, that's good. Yeah. It can be a little tough traveling with kids. and We love it. Yeah, yeah you love we it. love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll be good. And uh, how do you like the Bay Area? You just moved here Within the last couple of years, right? Almost three years ago. Mm. Um, it's we're, hard. We're in Berkeley, California. We're in Berkeley, yeah, mm. beautiful Berkeley. It's gorgeous here. Uh, love, I love living in a beautiful place. It's yeah. So, I didn't. I don't think I knew how beautiful it was until I lived here. Um, we just spent yesterday up and down the coast, um, driving Route One and oh, really? the cliffs and the waves and yeah, so beautiful. Um, the economic situation here is crazy. It's, I, it's a real issue. Yeah, the housing crisis. Uh, so expensive. Is affecting everybody. So, yeah. Yeah. It's sad to run into people who grew up in San Francisco, and they can't live there. Yeah. Or they're crashing on their friends. You know, whatever closet yeah. essentially. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what's gonna happen. Um, 
that doesn't feel sustainable to me. Yeah. Well, you know, I um, had a conversation with uh, Dr. Devin Zuber, another professor at CSS and the GTU around kind of like sustainability practices and how, you know, how society is structured. And um, I'm just curious, do you have any thoughts on, you know, our, our system or the fact that things like this can happen and people can be put out on the street and worry about food and all I can say is that it's so stark, but even just the three years that we've been living here, the tent cities that have come up around the Bay Area in those three years, um, it feels like it's happening very quickly, this disparity between the rich and the poor, and um, I see it, Yeah. and I don't, I don't have any, any uh, deep thoughts on how to solve the problem, but it's very clear um, that something's got to give. Yeah. yeah. We should change, right? We should reflect we should change. on yeah, let's change that. How, we're, <laughs> how we're doing things. And, you know, when we, when we were more like village, a village, at least in what I know of, you know, different uh, First Peoples groups and, and things like that is, we, we took care of each other. It really was a village mindset, but, but now... Not at all, really. And the us-them mentality, you know, those people in tents. I lived in a tent for 70 days one summer, not out of that kind of uh, economic necessity, but... Um, well, uh, 70 days. It doesn't mean, you know, the, the us-them thing, that, that we got to clear them out, we got to move them out. Uh, that's not the problem. The problem isn't that people shouldn't be there. It's that they don't have anywhere else to go. Um and the, the one of the, I don't know the first step, but one of the steps needs to be uh, understanding that we're part of the same community. We need to find a way of um, coming together. What I uh, the vision that I love. I don't have anything very profound or powerful to say about solving this problem. But uh, the Garden Church in San Pedro, which I was lucky enough to be a part of for a little while, they have this model. Which isn't, which isn't that you go out and feed the poor, right? You don't go and uh, to a soup kitchen and ladle out food to people on the other side of the table. Instead, the model is, you all come together, homeless people, people who are housed, people from all walks of life come together and they plant the food, they harvest the food, they prepare the food, and they sit down together at a table and they eat. And they actually do this every week. They actually, it's not just a pie-in-the-sky idea. They actually do this. They actually garden together and nice. eat together and worship together. And then the rest of the week, they see each other on the street. And they know each other's names. And they have conversation. And they check in with each other. How come That's I haven't great. seen Billy on the street this week? You know, he's usually there. Not, what's wrong? Have you heard? Is he okay? This kind of thing hmm. happens at the garden church, and it's such a um, it's such an interesting model. It's not like other things I've seen churches do. I'm sure it's not the only one. Yeah. But um, this getting over this us them barrier yeah. that we that we tend to rely on. Well, yeah, and the concentration of wealth, of course, um, you know, influences that us them mentality when you're kind of removed from the impact of poverty and you're making millions and millions every year, um, you, I think you, you become a little bit uh, just unaware. Like, you could be aware, but you're kind of in, you know, on, on your high mountain, right? And, and you know, we tend to, to be really focused on our own situation. And, um, yeah, that, that disparity is, is killing people, is really hurting children and, and, and adults and everyone. Um, and it's funny, I used, to, I used to work in finance. And our capitalistic system in America, we, the way we, we structure our publicly traded companies is to maximize uh, shareholder value, which is maximize profit. And of course, profit is the money you have left over after you've paid your workers. Uh -huh. um, and then, of course, the managers control that money. So at the end of the day, what happens? Well, 
Managers make a lot of money, millions every year, the CEOs and whatnot. Workers get paid as little as possible yeah. to keep them yeah. happy. And then the profit goes to the shareholders, quote unquote, in one way or another. And that's that's how we're incentivized. And and we we try to maximize that every three months, every quarter. You know, it's is that really a system that's conducive to health? I mean, say what you will about capitalism. It's not just capitalism that causes this, these disparity issues. It's our structure of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. And how many people can't afford a place to live even while they're working one or two full-time jobs? It's insane. It's insane. It's just... It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, something's got to give. Well, yeah. Well, shall uh, can I can I uh, do something a little a little different here? Okay. To to wrap up, uh, you're having a hell book. Oh, okay. You know, I would, there's this great podcast we were talking about the Harry Potter Sacred Scripture, uh-huh. uh, beautiful podcast and website. And I think it's all trend. through um, Harvard Divinity School. You think it's they've, all through? Harvard? Yeah, they they've done this really very successful program on. Reading yeah. Harry Potter's sacred scripture. Well, and of course, they've adopted a lot of their practices of, from other religions. But oh, right, yeah. I'm being inspired by them right now okay. to like <laughs> to crack so open what do this they book. Do? They just do... open it. And well, read you something? know, I'll have to listen to them more often okay. to get all the everything they do. But I thought maybe we could just turn to a random page and see what okay. pops out. And oh, okay. Why not? Right? Can you do it so, more towards the beginning of the book? <laughs> yeah. Is it? Oh, I don't Sorry, think we're in hell right. yet. <laughs> this is uh, Swedenborg's book, Heaven and Hell, uh, as you said, is probably his most popular book, at least up until recently. You Actually, would you... No, no, you do it, you do it. Go okay, ahead. random page. Random page, okay. But not in the introduction. Okay, good. Work. Um, we can see that this underlies all perfection from every instance of beauty, charm, and delight that moves both our senses and our spirits. So... Backing up a sentence, heaven is then a single whole composed of a variety of elements arranged in the most perfect form. For of all forms, the form of heaven is the most perfect. Okay, you picked a good one. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so this idea, <laughs> boy, good one. This idea that heaven is made perfect by by diversity. Yes. That the more, so heaven is a whole. So by heaven, we are talking about... Um, um, what are we talking about with heaven? Do we need to kind of back up and say what we mean? Yeah, well, heaven? why not? <laughs> okay. Heaven, yeah, if we can. Heaven is, heaven is a spiritual state of mind, a spiritual state of being that we create. and Within, uh, without. We create uh, yeah. that, and that we continue to exist in long after our physical bodies die. So it's relevant to us now and it's, also will continue to be It's a spiritual relevant. state of mind that we create. That we continue, that our spiritual bodies inhabit after um, our physical bodies die. Okay, yeah. And that heaven is made perfect by diversity. What a beautiful idea to end on. So this That's idea great. that heaven isn't just this static place that is the same for everybody and that is reserved for Christians and where everybody worships God all day long um, or plays the lute or whatnot. Heaven <laughs> is this place that is more diverse than the biggest city in the world, right? There's more diversity, that there's people of uh, all different backgrounds, religions, races, that we hold on to our identifying features Hmm. in the afterlife and that these identifying features contribute to the perfection of heaven. And we continue to grow. Yeah, that in our uniqueness. Yeah, no, No, I apologize. In our uniqueness. Yeah, that we participate in the perfection of heaven by being um, part of a whole community that embraces difference. Well, like that's a key attribute of heaven is embracing difference and yeah. all our different religious and, or non-religious point of views and, um, and relating to each other in healthy ways and in, in like a huge society, in a sense. Yeah, what a great model for thinking about society that we don't we um we embrace each other and we learn to see heaven in people who are different from us 
yeah, see divinity in others yeah. who may not share our opinions. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Right. Or who might look different than people we're used to being around, you know. Well, you know, we mentioned near-death experiences earlier. and Often, no matter what the spiritual bent of the person or not, often in those visions they see spiritual beings and, and, and people from their life that have passed still with bodies, right? Like they tend to see them in an environment, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And of course in Swedenborg's vision, although it's kind of trippy and it changes and very symbolic, people still have bodies, a spiritual body that, that you could actually look at and say and discern something about them, right? Yeah, we had a student, Rachel, in our class this semester who, um, she's just put it so clearly and simply when she said, you know, the, the fact that people might have different experiences of death isn't proof that there's nothing, right? <laughs> I might go, you and I might both take separate trips to Paris and come back and, and tell a third party, describe it to a third party, and it would sound nothing alike, it would sound totally different. It doesn't mean that Paris doesn't exist, that we all have different experiences of places in this world, why wouldn't we have different experiences um, of another kind of existence, of another kind of reality? Mm. So I think that's just a nice, simple way of putting it. That's great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And that was, for anyone who cares to find it, that was number 56 in Heaven and Hell, towards the middle. Beginnings, towards the beginning. Beginning of, yeah. Well, towards the beginning of the book. introduction. Yes. Uh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Esterson for being on. And, thank you. And sharing such wonderful insights and your journey. Oh, thanks. And join us again for another episode of Transcendence. And uh, hope you are well and uh, you're inspired by this conversation. If, if you have any comments or thoughts, some feedback, please leave it with the video and we'll be sure to take a look at that.